Father, thanks for loving us with a love that is honestly flat, un, un, unbelievable. The fact, Father, I can't even comprehend that you would love people like me and like my friends to the point that you'd send your son to die for us is incomprehensible. Thank you, Father, though, that you've done that, that you've drawn us to yourself, that you've made us known, that your Father, your Father has made it known to us, just like uh, Jesus points out in this passage. We're not smart enough to figure it out, so you had to figure it out for us. So stir our spirits this morning, Father, as we look at your word, cause us to fall more deeply in love with you and grow as men of faith, that we might make a difference this side of heaven for the sake of the other side. So we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen. Come on in, guys, please. Come in and grab a seat. It, it's, you're not going to bother me, I promise. All right, Matthew. All right. We've talked about this book when Dean started it a couple of weeks ago, and you heard me uh, pontificate a little bit last week, that Matthew is one of the unique books in the New Testament. Of the 27 books we have, it is one of two books, one of two books that is clearly written for the Jewish audience. This is one of the biggest problems, actually, that the Jews had in understanding why Jesus was really the Messiah. Because much that was written was written and to be understood by both audiences. And if you didn't have a keen ear to Hebrew uh, Bible of the Old Testament, then you'd miss out on tons and tons of stuff. But Matthew made a very clear uh, effort to get this, get this rolling. And so there are a lot of themes here that are very, very Jewish. And if we don't pick up on these Jewish themes, we miss what God is trying to tell us. Let's keep in mind, all these years from the time of Adam, all the way down when it started then to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, all the way through to Malachi, the Jews had this idea of a Messiah coming. But he was always in the context of their Ten Commandments. And when you start talking about a son of God, what you're talking about to them, you're really throwing the Jews a huge curveball. What is wrong with the term son of God to a Jew? That's right, there's only one God. So you see that concept of understanding the Trinity, that Jesus and the Father are one, and Jesus and the Spirit and the Father are one, and... And honestly, fellas, sometimes it's really difficult for us to get our hands around. But for the Jew, it was really a curveball. So when he comes on the scene and he has no office, no given authority, no one, no one set him up for his own rabbinic school. See, everybody, all the other religious leaders had a lineage that gave them that authority. Jesus shows up. Age 30, calls guys out that were never, that got passed on when they were 12 and 13. And Jesus made them a part of his own little rabbinic school. That's, that's how you grew up men to lead the faith. At age 12 or 13, they took the cream of the crop. In the Jewish tradition, all the kids were educated to about that age. And then at age 12, they would set apart the cream of the crop and they would travel with, they, point out different guys, and they would make him a rabbi or a teacher. And then they would go forward from there, building into this, this group of men. And it could be a group of men anywhere from 8 to 30. Well, all of these guys that Jesus picked up, obviously, were passed over. 
That's the biggest goal for a young Jewish boy, would be asked to be picked up by a rabbi and then taught. So you have that context. And now, as we talked about last week, he's trying to teach these guys to be men of faith. He's changing the system. In, this, in these two chapters we have here, the first, the first part of this is Pharisees and Sadducees. I just ask a couple of questions. And you guys can do this on your own, write them down, or cover them in your small group. But I just ask you, so why are religious leaders so desperately uh, trying to derail Christ? He has no authority. He has no position. He's not part of the Sanhedrin. He's not part of the Sadducees. He's not part of the Pharisees. Oh, by the way, do you know the difference? May I encourage you to go learn the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? Because if you know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee, you'll understand immediately how Jesus handled this little question when they were trying to trick him. They weren't testing him. They are trying to make him look like a fool. Because though he had none of these positions, he had an enormous following. And that's what people fear. So as the people were starting to follow him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were threatened by their power. So they're trying to make him look stupid. So they corner him. And Jesus very... He simply just derails their whole little strategy. You know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? You know that their theology is significantly different. You know that the Pharisees believe in a resurrection. You know the Sadducees don't. And when they were asking for a sign, what did Jesus tell them to do? Jonah. What's the point of the book of Jonah? It's a picture of the resurrection. Clever stuff. Following this thing through, this helps the the Hebrew audience read this and go, oh, that's what Jonah meant. I thought it was just a big fish swallowing a guy for three days and he came back. No, Jesus says that's the sign you need to be looking for. You go into, there's this uh, bunch of stuff. You see the conflict that Jesus and the religious leaders always have throughout, particularly the Gospel of Matthew. And guys, it bothers the Jewish people, that their leaders are held in contrast with the Messiah. And as they're trying to put all this thing together, you'll constantly see him going, and you'll notice, that where, is, where does Jesus get upset most about? False religion. What does Todd fuss most about? People that pretend. So you get into this situation, it's a tradition that is carried on from Jesus because what they were trying to do is move from a system where people believed or did things and called it religion to a system that was not going to be about faith. Remember last week we talked about after John the Baptist, he had to grow up a group of men that were going to be men of faith. And these two chapters, again and again, you see this theme of faith. And what is faith? Faith is all things we talked about last week. Simply put, it is believing, it is trusting in what God has said to be true and then lining up your obedience with that faith. To walk by faith. That's what Jesus is calling these guys to. And so he goes on in the next part of this. He goes back to this bread metaphor. You see this bread metaphor in all four Gospels. This bread deal is, is a big deal. Because in John... What does Jesus call himself? Bread of life. Very good. John 6, 35 or so. 
What did Jesus say uh, at the Passover uh, with the disciples, the last sword, the last supper? This is my, he took the bread, this is my body broken. So this metaphor of bread is a big, big deal. It's a couple of the biggest miracles that that everyone remembers, whether they believe in Jesus or not. They've all heard about the feeding of 5,000, which was really 10. The feeding of 4,000, which was really probably another 10. Because when they, when the scriptures refer to the number of people fed, they only count the number of men. It's Jewish tradition. So there were even more people than 5,000. There were even more people than the 4,000. But this bread is a picture of nourishment, both physical and spiritual. And then Jesus would also talk a lot. Remember, about the, you've heard this word leaven a lot. It is that yeast, that stuff that you put in the dough that makes bread rise. It either makes it something that can be preserved or something that, that ruins it. It has too much in it. And, and what leaven, what is added to this bread can either make bread good or bad. And he warns his disciples to watch out for the leaven of the religious leaders. He's comparing himself as the bread of life. And then he's warning them about religious leaders that are constantly trying to add things to it. And I would tell us as we study this passage and all the scriptures that we continue to do the same for ourselves. Know what the Word of God says and always, always be careful of what people try to add to it. Me or anybody else. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. That's why you have to read it. We're going to get to a quick little passage here. No, we're not. We don't, we're probably going to have time. But where it was misinterpreted, you know, a good 1,700 years ago, and it is still held and been kept around. Some really bad exegesis or bad handling of the Scripture. And yet, one thing led to another, led to another, and you've got now, you know, 1,700 years of history built on some bad mishandling of a passage. One of the ones we got today. Well, this, this whole deal is bread. I always thought this find was kind of funny. I'm sure you made these observations about the, the bread part in, in chapter 16. And the first thing it says is they forgot to bring the bread. I mean, you know, unless you're brain dead, guys, come on. They just fed 10,000 people. They picked up seven baskets. It was, it was the kind they carried fish in, so they were probably 36, 42 inches of woven deal that they could fold. And they had seven deals of bread filled up when they were through. And they left, and they forgot all their bread. They didn't even take anything to eat. Sounds to me like a guy's hunting trip in Texas, doesn't it? Got your guns, got your ammo, got your camo, got your knife, got all your stuff, and you probably have your beverages. Your food. Yeah, get, you got any food? No, I hate food. Well, we'll go eat. We'll find something. Yeah, we'll find something to eat. Well, you know, I, I'm just thinking these guys are not that far from us, fellas. I really not. You know, I keep thinking, you know, that, that we're advanced and that we've got it together. If we had it so together, would we continue to be the idiots that we can be? In the way that we love people, the way we steward our lives, the way we have a choice to be men of faith or men of disobedience. Yeah, we, we give these disciples a hard time. But keep in mind, these are slow learners. 
I'm a slow learner. You are a slow learner. These lessons have to be learned again and again and again. And before we just absolutely throw them under the bus, just understand it's a journey. It's a journey where you're taking them from a paradigm that was all about do's and don'ts. I mean, there was no faith involved in their process. It was a question of whether or not you did what you were supposed to do and show up at the right festival at the right time and do, do whatever it was that the Pharisees told you in the rabbinic tradition. But you didn't have to have any faith. And Jesus was taken from this model of do's and don'ts and trying to make them into men of faith. And it was going to be a process. You're going to find in a couple of verses here, you have this contrast that they forgot the bread, and then about 20 verses later, he's going to, in verse 24, he's going to give them the cost of discipleship. He's going to paint a picture of where you are, dudes, you, you bread forgetters, you Texas hunters, and he's going to show you what it looks like when you're full, fully devoted. But isn't it interesting that there wasn't one of those 12 guys that landed in that category of verse 24, this side of the resurrection. Keep in mind, guys, our journey to full devotion is just that. It is a journey. Oh, how I wish it was so for all of us that we could make the right statement, make the right promise, do the right thing, and and we would go from immaturity to complete maturity and full devotion. But as we learn from the disciples, it is a journey. And don't be discouraged. Just don't quit. I got an expression around my house with my kids as we, as we watch them grow and shepherd them and let them make mistakes and come back around and all that. I mean, my biggest deal is not about making mistakes. My biggest deal is about not getting back on the horse. And this is what Jesus is going to teach him. This stud Peter, as you walk all the way through his, his journey, you know, he's the only one at the end that, that is there, even though he fails miserably at the end when he denies Jesus three times. But where were the other eleven? They weren't even there. She so said, Peter, Peter blew it. Yeah, he blew it. But he blew it where very, very few people ever get to blow it. And who was the first one that Jesus restored and said, get back on the horse. What I'm looking for is somebody that is fully devoted. Are you ready to ride again, Peter? Are you ready to lose your life for my sake? It's a great picture. But this is what you see in the, in the uh, Gospels here, guys. Don't get confused when you see disciples making mistakes and then seeing a few chapters later, you see Jesus calling them to absolute full devotion. That is the goal. That's, why, that's what we are all about. That's what the one another is about. That, that we don't let each other stay where we are. That the journey is to honor Christ. And he says, the more you lose your life, the more you gain it. And that's where the journey comes. He said, you know, when he's talking about if you really want to gain your life, you've got to lose it. You've got to die to yourself. Paul will back this up again and again in his writings. That the way that you get to maturity is you've got to get yourself out of the way. Because you are your biggest enemy in growing up in Christ. My desires for comfort, my desires for security, my desires for me are the things that prohibit me from taking steps that Jesus would surely want me to take by now. Oh, let's look at a couple of other things here. 
Uh, this he asked a big question. He said, uh, in chapter 16, verse 13, And Jesus came to the district of Philippi. Philippi, uh, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? This is the big question. Here's where it all starts. You get the question, Who do the people say I am? And the question is, you know, they, are you John the Baptist? Are you Elijah? Are you Jeremiah? And, and this is how I study. This is, I just wanted to give you a little snapshot of what I do with a passage. You, you, can just, you can trash this as soon as you see it. But I want you to know, this is how you get, I find stuff in the Scripture. Why would they say John the Baptist, is, is Jesus John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist is just here. Why do you say that Jesus is another John the Baptist? Well, a couple of things. First of all, they're bo- both born of divine intervention. So they both have a vital role in the proclamation of salvation. 400 years have been, it's been very, very quiet. And John the Baptist comes on the scene. And as most of you know, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, which always makes this an interesting deal anyway. Uh, Jesus also was, played a vital role, I'd say. The difference goes like this. And I said, John the Baptist prepared the way. And Jesus is the way. Then John the Baptist stood at the threshold of kingdom, calling people in. And then Jesus is the door to the kingdom. So you see the contrast of John the Baptist to Jesus. So I would, I would package that away, say, well, I understand why people want to call him John the Baptist. He was a stud. But he was more than just John the Baptist. The second one is Elijah. Both were men of prayer. They were both involved in supernatural acts. Uh, you know, if you remember the story of Elijah, he was the one that, that uh, took on all the prophets of Baal, one of the great, great stories of the Old Testament. And he took them all on. And uh, it turned out to be a huge, huge uh, bloodbath. But they both took on false religion. Elijah caused the blood of others. All of these prophets of Baal were killed. And Jesus' victory cost his own blood. So they were a little bit different in that regard. Then I looked at Jeremiah. I said, why do people think he was Jeremiah? I said, because they were both incredible patients and they endured suffering. Jeremiah was a very, very noble man. And, of course, we know our Savior to be very noble in all that he did as well. So they had these parallels of being patient, having suffered, being very noble. And they both spoke of something. Jeremiah was the first one to really clearly speak of the new covenant, of the new day, the new deal that will be coming down. Well, things will be different. And, of course, Jesus spoke of the new covenant. And Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He wept for Israel. And I said, well, Jesus died for Israel, so that made them a little bit different. So when you get to passages of Scripture, don't always just gloss over them. This is what we're trying to teach you to feed yourselves, to go, okay, if you throw out names like that, ask yourselves the question, why? Why would they even think that Jesus was John the Baptist? Well, Peter gives the right answer, and uh, he says, the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is um, verse 15, that who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow. Do you have any idea? Obviously, do you study the passage this week to yourselves? This passage is loaded. There's more theology and there are more points to this little discussion that, re, that comes out of the question, who do you say that I am? And this idea that he says that he's the son of God, son of the living God. Remember I said on the, one of our first opening remarks is that this is very troublesome to the Jews, is it not? Because what does it sound like is that there are multiple, multiple gods. There's a family. It's, it's not that far from Greek mythology. So the bells would be going off in the heads of the Jews saying, Oh great, we got a Zeus and a son of Zeus. we got Thor and the son of Thor. These guys aren't any different. Because it would be a process of revealing through the Holy Spirit that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. And this mystery is great and... Uh, and it takes lots of study to even begin to comprehend an incomprehensible God. But it really bothered the Jews. And so they had a hard time getting to that point where they could just rush in. People go, well, didn't they see all the miracles? They saw miracles, but it ran in the face of what they've been told all their lives. You guys understand that? This is, I think, kind of important. As you, It's a great way to be able to answer this question for people that are part of your, your circles, they, go, you, they come and with discuss, go, I can't believe those Jews missed that, that whole deal. Well, that's why they missed it. There were some real obstacles to them. Well, I got, there's a few, few facts I'll just throw out here, and you guys can wrestle with this later. The facts behind this statement and this conversation um, are, are great. You know, I told you last week we talked about you have miracles and what that shows us about God and what it tells us. But the dialogues teach us theology. So he goes, uh, the Father reveals the truth and Peter did not figure it out by himself. That's a very, very important verse, guys. This idea that it is the Father who pierces into our deadness. The Holy Spirit pierces our deadness. How do we become Christians? How do we come to be men of faith? We're dead men, and yet God quickens us to understand this thing. It's a huge mystery. But what they want to be very clear about is, as Jesus was to Peter, says, you weren't smart enough to figure this out. You would not know about me if I didn't choose to reveal it to you. And that raises a lot of questions, good questions. Say, see also Ephesians chapter 1 and a few other great passages. Another little uh, piece of theology. I said the rock is the answer that Peter gave. This little thing is the one I referred to on the, the very first. Is that this, this is bad. bad uh, I hate to use these, my, my own terms, but it's bad exegesis. It's bad handling of the scriptures. And what I mean by that is that these are different words. A long time ago, was, this was translated to say, well, when Peter said, uh, you're the son of the living God. And, and so Jesus said, that's right, Peter, and because you're so darn smart, I'm going to build my church on you. And so you will become the rock of the church, Peter. You will become head of the church, and all of that is to follow. And that's not what this passage is teaching. This passage is teaching that Peter answered the correct question. And the correct answer 
is the thing that Jesus would build his church on? And that correct answer is that Jesus is the son of the living God. It would be the rock bed. It will be the foundation. It will be the cornerstone of the faith. It all hinges on Christ. So that was going to change all the systems too. So that bothered a lot of folks. That In the year 330, whatever it was, when they, they kind of wrapped some of this stuff back around and they decided that, well, Peter's got to be head of the church and therefore we have to have descendants from Peter to kind of maintain the leadership of the church. And, and it got into a bunch of stuff that's, quite frankly, guys, not biblical. But it goes from not handling this passage well and that they tried to make the antecedent here Peter rather than Peter's answer. Uh, so we know that the church will be built upon Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, the fourth fact about this is the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. This is interesting that death will not destroy this thing. And of course, here's the theology of the resurrection. That you cannot... This is where it all hinges. This is our friend Josh McDowell discovered back in 1968 when he wrote Evidence Demands a Verdict or whenever it was. But the whole idea, Josh was his, uh, McDowell was a student at the University of Michigan and was challenged that if you could... Dismantle, if you could disprove the resurrection, you can wipe out the whole Christian faith. Which is the great thing. I mean, all these guys are out there bashing Christianity. All you have to do is go prove that Christ didn't come back from the dead, and you have the end of the discussion. But you know what? They still haven't done it. Because it happened. And thank God it did. The gates, the, the gates of Hades will not overpower. And the third thing is that binding and loosening powers. I like to talk a lot about this because I find this whole thing fascinating. Uh, you may be very well aware of this, so forgive my, the redundancy, but there, there's, the Jews came up out of a tradition, as I shared very briefly about how they had groups of disciples, and they had what they called binding and loosening authority. And what that meant is if my friend Kyle here is a rabbi, and he's got a group of guys, and Kyle has the authority to help them see what is right and wrong with their thinking. And so these mysteries of the Old Testament, of the Torah, of the book of the law, when these young disciples would go, but what does this mean? Does this mean so-and-so? Then Kyle could guide them in the understanding of that. And so he became an important authoritarian figure. That's why they, when they called him teacher, teacher, rabbi, rabbi, that was a big deal. Because he kind of had the last word on how you understand things of, of the Scriptures. And so basically what you're, what you're seeing here is that Jesus is then turned around, giving these guys, these twelve, this binding and loosening authority. They will help God through the Holy Spirit will use these men to help people discern spiritual truth as he unfolded the New Testament. It was a big responsibility. And if they're sitting in this group and they're hearing this and they're going, are you kidding me? I don't know I signed up for this. This is, this is big potatoes here, man. But the exciting part is, obviously, that the Holy Spirit, yeah, that was my sign. So you'll hear about the transfiguration another time. Hey, guys, uh, go, have, go have a fun time in your group. And uh, don't forget the bread. Have a good morning. Thanks.